am very excited to talk to you, Andy Smerick of the Manhattan Institute. And I just was saying that I don't want our listeners to miss out on your extensive experience in K-12 education, because you often opine on subjects, I feel like, and some people opine without um, having any real knowledge of what they're speaking, but I feel like you have a ton of knowledge. We were just going through all the places that you have worked, including state boards of education and currently higher ed commission in Maryland, right? That's right. Uh, U.S. Department of Education. That's right. So um, at the federal level, I worked for a member of the House of Representatives as a legislative aide, worked at the White House, was U.S. Department of Education. Um, And then at the state level, everything from state legislative aid to state board of education, a state department of education, and now working for a the state's higher education commission, though all views I express here are my own and do not represent those of the state. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But what about your most important job? You're also the father of young children. I am the father of a um, a, a fifth grader. He is 10, about to turn 11, and uh, twins who are eight, about to be nine, who are in third grade. So I think in this last 12 to 13 months, anytime I meet anyone with kids, I have to ask them the question, how's it going? Well, thank you for asking. It has been a challenge. Uh, Our school system, even though we live in a relatively rural area, uh, was pretty slow um, getting out of the blocks for a couple different reasons. Public school school system. yeah, it, we were in totally online for about a year, and then they went back to half days, two days a week, and then uh, we were able to uh, transition them to essentially full time. It's four day, four full days a week, um, one day at home. Um, but that's been for about the last month or so. But it was okay. you know a solid year of nothing but online learning. Did they want to go back? They did. They did. And did you um, want them to go back? Yes, I, my wife and I would have sent them back earlier. We were not um, all that worried. We were concerned about the health um, issues, but um, you have to put everything on a scale. And for us, the side of the scale of that they're going back and getting to be with their teachers and yeah. kids had more weight than the side of like concern of um, health, which we thought was uh, relatively minor, all things considered. Yeah, I know a lot of parents of kindergartners and preschoolers just decided not to even start them this year because... <laughs> You know, that experience of either going with a mask, which is very unpleasant for small children, or just joining online didn't seem like the best way to kick off for very young kids. But um, what I wanted to talk to you about was just this general, let, let me give you some information about Missouri. Okay. I don't know if you've seen it. There was a poll done in Missouri in December, and the parents here were pretty unhappy. In fact, a quarter of parents rated their child's online learning experience as a D or an F. Wow. Yeah. And also they lost trust in the public school system to make, to make good decisions. Um, the ones who, the percentage who trust them 100% of the time went from like 25 to 16 and almost all the time went from 45 to 32 from one year to the next. And they were also very concerned that their kids were behind. In 2019, it was 7% thought their kids were behind. And in 2020, 37%. So wow. generally- very, uh, a lot of people who are very unhappy. And, and I, of course, ask people all the time what their experience has been. But, um, and I don't know who's to blame, but let's talk about what you wrote in the dispatch recently, because I do hear a lot of people grumbling that the teachers unions are being unreasonable and keeping schools from reopening, right? Yes, yes, that is a dominant narrative, for sure. Egregiously in Fairfax County, Virginia. 
Uh, yeah, it, it turns out in a bunch of urban areas and then some of the wealthier suburban areas just outside of the big urbans um, uh, where some of this has come to a head, uh, generally big districts. Uh, so in general, the story has been, my argument is that districts have mostly followed public opinion. Some people are saying it's the other way around, but um, if you look at generally, Red areas in America, the more conservative areas, have been more um, skeptical of the long-term influence of, uh, of coronavirus. They didn't think it was as serious as blue areas were. Rural areas similarly thought we should get up and running schools and otherwise more quickly than um, urban areas did. Um, white families were um, similarly more likely to say get things up and running, including schools, than um, uh, black families and a little bit more than Hispanic families as well. So there were these very clear demographic, economic, uh, and even geographic factors at play. And so when you put all those things together, it's turned out that rural America and small districts got open much more quickly and families were quite happy with that. And it's in some of these bigger areas, um, big school districts, urban school districts, blue areas in general, where both families wanted things to stay closed on average more and they did stay closed. So what we ended up getting interestingly was um, about 75% of families in general across America saying they liked what their districts were doing. Hmm. So the people who were in areas that were open, um, it was largely because more families wanted them to be open and they liked that. In areas where schools were closed, they wanted them to be closed and they were happy that their districts were doing their best with online learning. And so this is partially an interesting story of how great small-scale democracy can be. Um, for those of us who thought schools should have been open more quickly, like me, um, I was kind of discouraged with how things played out, but I'm not a dictator. So I don't get to right. say how everything is across America. And so schools really did a pretty good job, not perfect, pretty good job of representing what the majority of people wanted in each small geographic area. I think you're right. I mean, what I thought was I guess I'll use the word interesting, but kind of funny at the time is that school districts would put out these guidelines like no positive cases for 14 days and less than five, like they would put out these very specific numeric things and then we'll open up three days. And then they just kind of threw them out because parents were showing up and they were getting angry and they're like, you know, re regardless of all those numbers that we set down, uh, we're going to do hybrid now because they, I think they were just getting pushback from parents. And I do think that they were responsive to that. You know, I have a friend whose daughter picked in person, son picked online. And if you picked in person, that meant that whenever they offered in person, you're the first ones who get it. So when they started offering it, she got an online version, but her son, I'm sorry, an in-person for a few days a week. Her son had picked virtual and they said, oh, and we're going to change virtual from eight to three to eight to 11. And she was like, wait a minute, right. he's in third grade. And he actually had joined, you know, uh, a, a, a pod. I hate to call him that, but a pod. And the parent that was hosting it was like, well, what am I going to do from 11 to three? So parents pushed back. They changed that within days. So I do think that district and school leaders are hearing a lot from parents this year. For sure. Yeah. And a lot of the national voices who have been weighing in on this, I don't think they completely appreciated the diversity of opinion across America um, because so much of the national news story was, oh my God, look what's happening in um, suburban Virginia or yeah. in New York City when there are you know, 13,500 school districts and many of them don't look anything like 
uh, Montgomery County, Maryland, or Fairfax, Virginia, or New York City. Um, the average school district in America has like six or seven schools, not a in Missouri, thousand. It's three. We tend but, to have like elementary, yep. middle, high school. We have 520 districts, but very small. Yeah, it's something like a third of the districts in America have one or two schools in them. Often yeah. it's because, I don't know if you guys have this like send and receive relationship. There are districts that only have a K-8 school and then they have, have a, a couple relationship. couple of those, but we have a lot, a lot of K-6 and 7-12s. So, I mean, these are, and we have probably a hundred schools at least with fewer than a hundred students. I mean, we have some very school small areas in last spring uh, we, not really we, but like an intern that was working for us, looked at what every um, district was doing. And so many of those small districts were putting together homework packets that parents could pick up when they, if they had to pick up a meal, but they didn't really have to be turned in. I mean, they just didn't have capacity to switch to That's online right. learning. And I'm not surprised that they're going to just reopen in the fall. Number one, there weren't really cases of COVID in their community, right? Yeah. So they're like, why should we stay closed? And they, 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 some of them don't have web pages, websites, you know? <laughs> That's right. And so this is the other part that I think so many people missed, which is um, you know, New York City that has you know, over a thousand schools and I don't know, 1.1 million kids. They have enormous intra-district capacity, the number of teachers and principals and like their district itself probably literally has thousands and thousands of employees, not just working on Title I, but working on special education and facilities and transportation. Um, if you are a district that has two or three schools, it very well may be the case that you have a superintendent, maybe one assistant superintendent, and maybe two or three people who work in the central office, but everyone right. else is based in the schools. And so um, what I think a lot of people didn't appreciate is just how hard it is to get a district that doesn't have much capacity to go from, you know, a hundred years worth of expecting all kids to hop on a bus, get to their brick and mortar, you know, and send them home to on a dime, try to ask them to suddenly figure out how to do hybrid learning or online learning. Mm -hmm. And then even <laughs> worse, do a blend of all of them because some parents want hybrid, someone full-time right. in person and trying to like teach teachers how to do this just the operations of doing that is so much harder um, than I think a lot of people gave it credit for. And so I think districts it, were not perfect, but the narrative that unions were the, were just gumming everything up, I think is too simplistic for all of the complexity that was out there. However, I don't think that the union leadership, I want to be very specific about union leadership and not teachers who are members of unions, did themselves any favor with a lot of their rhetoric. And now in, you know, better than I do, it was in your article, at least one district in California, teachers are getting a, a stipend for childcare. Yes. So or is that uh, all of California? That, that I don't know about, but you were right on the point about union leaders. They came out hard early on about safety concerns, which I didn't blame them for at all. I mean, the purpose of unions, I mean, if you were to probably narrow it down to one thing, um, is to look at for the safety, the health of their members. And this is a classic example, especially if a union has a long-term unhealthy relationship with management in the district, mm -hmm. for them to say, wait, we are going to be doubly, triply sure that you guys are keeping our members safe. And so I understood that. And um, many of them did that. But then in some of these areas, the unions just went completely overboard saying, you know, right. we're not going to allow anyone, any school to open until every adult is vaccinated. And then, okay, well, even if every adult is vaccinated, we still think that it's not safe to open up again. Um, it, it just, in some places, it 
uh, just became enough to drop your jaw. And I mean, some of the leaders tried to do better on this, but those were the outlier cases that didn't represent what was happening in most of America. What do you think is going to happen in the fall? I think 90 plus percent of districts are going to be open um, with something looking like a full-time in-person option. And uh, there will still be some districts that for whatever reason can't get their act together and are mostly hybrid. But I think after all of these vaccines and um, just parent sentiment that it's going to be hard for any district to say that we just can't uh, give it, give kids who want the option of being in person uh, the option of doing so. So how many kids actually end up going back is going to be the interesting question. Because mm -hmm. one thing that I found through all the survey data that I was looking through is the, the much higher than what I expected number of families that were given the in-person option, but declined it who right. they can go back, but they said, no, we're not ready yet. And again, it's disproportionately um, uh, black families who are more concerned about like the long-term COVID risks. Mm -hmm. So when schools open up in Washington, DC, in New York, Los Angeles, wherever, are we going to see a mass exodus of people from their homes back into schools? Or are we still going to see, I don't know, a million kids, 2 million kids, 5 million kids nationwide who have the option of going back, but don't. And then that raises these questions of, are they going to do pods, online learning? Are they going to go to hubs? Are they going to do um, hybrid micro schooling? We just don't know yet. And I don't right. know what that number is going to be. Well, I know that um, in St. Louis County, I was reading an article about a lot of school districts have decided to make their virtual learning option permanent. Yep. So they put a lot of uh, resources into it. They've kind of figured it out. And now they're also hearing from parents who are like, this is actually better for my child because they were uncomfortable, they were bullied, whatever the reason, they're, they're thriving at home. So, you know, in Missouri, we have a statewide virtual program called MOCAP. And the article I was reading quoted a superintendent of saying, we don't want to lose them to MOCAP because you, as we all know, every child also is a dollar sign, right? So yep. it's going to be a lot of clamoring, I think, for enrollment numbers. There's some uh, hold harmless stuff in Missouri where you can use enrollment numbers from 1920 or 1819 or even 1718. So we're holding harmless on enrollment, even though we know a lot of students haven't shown up. But I do think that there is going to be, I, I know for a fact, there's added pressure on school districts to give more than one option. Because this year, if anything else, it showed us that a lot of parents, when they're given just one option, become very unhappy all across the socioeconomic status um, spectrum. Yeah, this I think is going to prove, oh, I should be a little bit more, um, modest about the, my, my prediction. So let me say it this way. This has the potential to be much more disruptive long-term than charter schools, private school choice, because we gave, we forced 50 million kids to try something new, some version of online learning over the course of a year. And even charter schools or private schools at their best were never like forced on people. They didn't have to do it. So um, they just got acclimated to, and in many cases, like their districts. So uh, this question of districts are going to try their best for lots of reasons to keep kids in. But if the family has decided, you know, I can work from home more and I like having my daughter's home two days a week, or, you know, my son really just wasn't fitting in in middle school. Maybe I'll keep him home full time. And then all of these options 
whether they're district run or nonprofit run or online or some version of homeschooling, if there is a policy apparatus to allow those parent choices to actually become real, then we could see literally in the millions of families choosing this. But if families don't have them, like if their district isn't going to provide an online option and they don't have money to choose something else, then they could just default back to what it was. But in the places that have ESAs or voucher programs or where districts are creating online programs, I think we're going to see um, 2021, 22 look way different than say 2018. Again, if yep. that's 2 million kids or 5 million kids, I don't know, but it's, it's going to be non-trivial. I think that's right. We are, like, even as we speak, potentially today, our Senate is discussing an ESA bill, and we have no uh, school choice programs in Missouri, um, but this one is purposefully flexible because we know that uh, University of Washington's collected data throughout um, on what's happening in schools, and they have a database now of these uh, education hubs or pods, whatever you want to call them, and we know that like the Boys and Girls Club in Springfield and the YMCA in Columbia and the YMCA in Kansas City, and there's a, a church and they're um, giving parents an option where their children, especially parents who have to work outside the house. So that's who I feel the worst for this year. I keep saying yep. I worry about like six and seven year olds being home alone, but to give them a place to, to go and then somebody helps them with their virtual learning and they have tutors and um, and they're safe and then they get them some physical exercise. And uh, but it's like. 125 to $200 a week per child to pay yeah. full-time, part-time. It's a cost. And a lot yep. of parents can't absorb that, you know, public schooling was free, so they can't absorb that. So I'm really hopeful that the uh, Missouri legislature is going to do the right thing here and create these scholarships that parents can use either private school tuition or to customize like that, or just tutors or, you know, homeschool with tutors or homeschool because that I completely agree will, I think, be a long-term outcome of this pandemic is that people don't normally go from more choices to fewer happily. That's right. right? So I well, think now that parents have had sort of an idea like, wow, I can even take my son who's not doing well in person and have him go virtually. And my daughter who loves school and wants to go socialize can go in person. And you're realizing that you can put these things together on a child by child basis. And I don't see parents just handing that back over to um, assignment by address. I agree 75% of the way, or maybe I agree hundred percent of the way, but like, here's the caveat I would yeah, add. Yeah. So, so I've never, I'll, I'll take 75. <laughs> I've never been as bullish on online learning as other like right of center people or school choice folks. It hmm. just, I'm too much of like a Burkean conservative. Like I, lots of people looked at our public education system, including secretary DeVos and would say, oh my goodness, it looks the same as it has for 150 years. Therefore it must be wrong. My, my impulse was always, it's looked the same for 150 years. It must be doing something right. Sure. So when people were saying, oh, there's going to be this huge disruptive innovation of online learning and we're going to see 10 million kids doing it this year and then 50 million before too long, my thought was always, you know, I actually think that we've probably learned that there's something good about the community aspect of brick and mortar schools and being with kids in person and teachers, that this probably has both manifest and latent values, virtues to it that um, people like and they're going to stick with. And then when some of the data started coming back on fully online schools and even some online charter schools, and it turned out that maybe in year one, kids were doing well, but then there was a deep fall off afterwards. It just wasn't working for everyone. It just struck me that, okay, 
this, I may have been too pessimistic about it, but I was right that it's not going to be for everybody, mm -hmm. but is it going to be right for 10% of the school age population or 5%. So now that we have so many kids who have tried it, we're probably not going to see the destruction of school districts. But I, I can't imagine that there's going to be any major school district that doesn't see, again, a non-trivial drop off in perpetuity of kids. And it might be the bullied kids, it might be the gifted kids, it might be kids whose parents have like work possibilities that allow them to do more of this stuff. I just don't think this is going to totally revolutionize things for everybody, but it's going to be, it, it'll be something. I could see parents really liking the hybrid. You know, a lot of us, I agree. I've been fully remote working, but a lot of people are going into the office one or two days a week. So you get that connection, you do your in-person meetings, but then yep. you work remotely for a lot of the time. And I could see thinking that it would be great for your child to go a few days a week and do sports and things like that. And then have a couple days at home uh, with you. I, I think I might've liked that. I don't know. My kids are all grown, but I can see parents liking that. And that sounds like the most chaotic for school districts to manage. It is going to Me. create a huge burden for districts to manage this thing. And we shouldn't, you know, cry too much about that. Like school systems are for kids. They're not for the adults. Mm -hmm. um, so like if families want something else and it's going to be better for kids, we should encourage districts to figure out how to navigate this thing. But at the same time, I want people to recognize that if for 150 years you have expected a district to run a certain model of brick and mortar in person, 22 kids per classroom, and then suddenly say, all right, half of your kids are going to do that. 25% are going to be totally online. 25 are going to be somewhere in between. Like that, it's not D-Day to figure that out, but it yeah, is yeah. a lo logistical challenge. Sure. And um, trying to get districts, especially a small district that, again, might have, I don't know, 800 kids. Um, that, that It's not nothing to expect them to figure out how to do that. That's right. And then you have teachers who never wanted to teach online, and they just like, probably have held their breath this last year. I mean... I think we're all tired of Zoom, even as you and I sit here in Zoom, everyone is tired of Zoom. So a lot of teachers like, you know, muscled it out, but they probably want to get back to what they've been doing for 20 years and others who discovered how great it is and they really like it. And the, they could maybe volunteer to be part of the virtual team. I don't know, but I said this last year and I guess I'll repeat it based on what you just said. I'm certainly glad I'm not a school superintendent in 2020 or 2021. Sounds very, very challenging. To their credit, a lot of these um, superintendents, and I used to complain about this, but so many of them were classroom teachers and then department chairs and then school principals, and then they became assistant superintendents and then superintendents. They were pretty well positioned to at least know what questions to ask in navigating this change. Had you put me some sort of like policy wonk in charge of a district of uh, 100,000 kids, I probably would have mangled it pretty badly. Just knowing how to run a district um, is difficult even in the best of circumstances. The, let's just linger for a second on this question of teachers. In the best case scenario, it'll turn out, let's imagine that there's a district where next year 20% of kids decide they want to do either online or hybrid. Mm -hmm. It could be the case that in that district 20% of teachers decide they want to do online teaching or hybrid. Perfect. What happens if those numbers are way off? Like, 50% of kids want to be hybrid, but only 5% of teachers want to teach online right. or the other way around. All parents want their kids in person, but half of the teachers want to do some sort of online thing. This could have a profound influence on the teaching profession, 
who's willing to stay in, who says this isn't for me anymore. I wanted to be with kids, not on the computer screen. And then who is willing to go into teaching if there's a 20 year old right now who's in college thinking about being a teacher because he or she wants to be around kids all day and like likes that interaction, but they're being told, you know, the future of teaching might be sitting in front of a computer. What is that yeah. gonna do to education schools? This is at least a question worth asking. That's right. Um, what do you think about these education pods or education hubs that have popped up? Do you think they'll continue? I, I mean- It sounds kind of faddish. And I think the percentage in the surveys of parents who say absolutely want to be in one of these, you you know the survey data, your article is full of numbers, which I love. Um, I think the numbers are declining. Almost for sure. So the idea behind these hubs were like pods kind of on steroids. Like if a pod is just a self-organized group of families, a hub was some sort of location deciding that they were going to just be a place for families to get together, even families who didn't know one another. Uh, and what a hub could do could be anything from just literally be a gym that reserves one of its open rooms for kids to be there. Or it could be adults are supervising or a teacher is actually given content or a bunch of like college students are helping kids as they're doing online learning through their district. It could be lots of different things. I love, love, love the concept because this is real human beings in real life, figuring out a real problem with creative solutions. Like this is the kind of thing that Tocqueville would have loved. Right. Um, it's just like social entrepreneurialism, but social entrepreneurialism always follows social need this was a response to conditions. If those conditions go away and schools are back open again, do right. hubs just disappear? I don't know. Prob probably. But what happens, again, if you're in a district and 200 families decide, you know, we kind of like this. Um, hey, Boys and Girls Club, you weren't really using this room until after school. If it's empty anyway, can we continue to use it? Um, yeah, so hubs probably have reached their peak in terms of popularity, they will fall. But I hope they continue in some form and whether they end up being a place for homeschoolers or online learning or some, some hybrid of them, I don't know. But it's been a neat, like only in America would we okay. see something like this. Like this is a very American, you know, let's just figure this thing out through voluntary associations. Invention is the mother of necessity, right? Necessity is mother of invention. I just completely that's right. that up. Necessity is mother of invention. I, and also we know from preliminary data that the percentage of families who are homeschooling has minimally doubled. Some states are reporting more bigger numbers like Wisconsin, but minimally it's been a steady 3%. It's hard to get the, the number of homeschoolers because it's, that's, that's it's right. kind of a tough group to get numbers on. But the um, Department of Education is always estimated at about 2 million families yep. or or students, we know that number's gone up. And I wonder if that will stick or if parents will um, tire of it. Well, here's, let me add another complication to this. Prior to online learning, it was pretty easy to draw a line between public school students, private school students and homeschool students. Once there were charters and then once there were online programs and hybrid programs, and now this like, high school students getting to take college credits at a community college and take one of their courses online, but sit in the district or 
it is going to be hard to tell if you're okay. So say you're a student and you're typical and you're still enrolled technically in your district, but you're doing half of your classes through an online program with the district, but you're at a hub half of the time. And one of your friend's parents is teaching the other half. What does that count as? I do not have any idea. Is that homeschooling? Is that chartering? Is it, what, what, what do we call it? So these lines are breaking down in a way that makes technocrats like me crazy because we can't measure and we can't count and then we can't write reports on it. But Mike McShane's book on what is called the hybrid, hybrid homeschooling, homeschooling <laughs> is so interesting because it gets at this, um, I mean, uh, 10 years ago, we were talking about unbundling um, education, like thinking about how do you get different courses from different clay, uh, cafeteria different... style. Yeah, this is this is sort of a version of it, but it's less about like pick and choose classes and is pick and choose modalities. Yeah, where are you? Who's teaching? And then like later on is a conversation about the content. But uh, for some number of families, I think this is the future. How many? Yeah, I don't um... know. My youngest is 25. I homeschooled him in fourth grade using an online program. So it was very early days of that. And I kind of did it just to see what it was like. And he was a gamer. So we did it one year online. And, uh, and it was interesting. I thought it was, I thought it was pretty good, but not good enough to stick with it uh, after yep. fourth grade, but, but pretty interesting. And I, I do know that in um, federal data surveys, if you ask a pa parents of, for example, uh, online charter schools, where what kind of schooling their kids receive, they say homeschooling more often than not. So then you have to go back and like correct the response to say, no, they're not, they're not homeschooled. They attend an online charter school, but to the parent, it feels like homeschool, right? For, they for they sure. don't care what the governance structure is, right? To them, it feels like homeschool. So, but I, I just, I just wonder if, um, I just, I wonder what the numbers are going to look like on homeschooling. And to your point, this is where I think, you know, when, when the genie comes out of the bottle, when parents can pick all these different things, the likelihood that we'll go back to, I think right now, 75 to 80% of parents send their child to their assigned public school, brick and mortar. I think that number is going to go down. Yes. I really do. It's going to go down faster than it would have organically. I think COVID-19 is going to force that number down. Yes. Uh, how much these numbers go down, I think... I can't wait to see what enrollment figures look like when most states do their counts, what, like October 1st, uh, mm -hmm. this fall. And then how much bounce back is there after that over the course of the 21-22 school year? Um, I can't imagine there's any district who's going to have, well, apart from migration, immigration things, but uh, most districts are going to lose some number of students to okay. homeschooling, private schooling, and then this mass in the middle of hybrid type things. And districts are going to have to figure out, are they going to be the provider of content to these students who want something different? Or are they going to offshore that to other kind of providers? Some of it will be a monetary question. Some will be like a human capital. Do we have the teachers to do it? Um, uh, time will tell. But one interesting element of this is districts that got open more quickly, especially in the red areas and in rural areas. I think that people are likely to have in their big picture of what the schooling looked like, this will have been a blip, yeah. this like COVID era. And the vast majority of people will go back to business as usual. But if you were in a big urban area where schools have been closed for a year and you had some sort of experience with some sort of online provider, 
or some sort of like um, hub or pod that worked for you. Mm -hmm. In those areas, we may see the pickup rate of non-traditional options be much higher. So we actually may see that in these areas that were less willing to get open quickly, those are the ones that suffer student loss more than the rural areas that just like by gumption and force of will somehow figured out how to get open in the fall or you know late fall of this yeah. year. Yeah, I think a bunch of Missouri districts just YOLO'd it and just opened. I mean, there I think are some so. like, we don't have any options. The buses are coming to pick you up. Um, so just one last thing. I know no one knows, like we won't know for a while. What's your gut on um, learning loss? Um, just a little question. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't have a view different than what the conventional wisdom is, which is there will be some overall, probably in the month's worth, like overall. So if we're doing like learning in terms of like a school year, so let's yeah. say on average, it'll be a third of a year loss, maybe a half year at the worst, but that, that average is going to hide like the big variation. I bet lots of students will have lost little um, in terms of academic gains, um, middle income, especially families that were able to figure out how to do online learning quite well. And there are going to be some number, I don't know if it's 25% of kids, um, mostly Title I, or the smaller percentage. Bellwether had this staggering figure they predicted of like the hundreds of thousands of kids who just kind of disappeared from school systems. Uh, where is me? homeless kids or kids who were in foster care or what, whatever kind of reasons. There could be kids who lost not just a year's worth of knowledge, but even went further back. Mm -hmm. And so whatever kind of um, income and racial demographic influences on achievement, those are likely to be exacerbated. Right. The extent of it, too soon to tell, but this is one reason why I'm still an accountability hawk. Let's test these kids as soon as humanly oh, possible. Figure I it out. That and also, I, do, I will say as a sidebar, I read that in the last pandemic in 1918, there was a whole generation who kind of never caught up employment-wise, income-wise, like it, it had a permanent impact on their long-term outcomes. But, you know, federal government's passing out a lot of money right now. Missouri's going to end up with $4 billion in two years. And, our, you know, we typically spend about 10 or 12. It is sizable. It's going to end up being 4500 per student, you know, can't. I am concerned, let me put it that way, that we will not be smart without we spend that money. Yes, I mean, we learned from ARRA, the stimulus package uh, in 09, the Obama yeah. era one with the um, Great Recession, that $100 billion went down to districts and it was pretty much just to fill what kind of budget gaps they had. This is even more money and you could make the case a lot of this money actually isn't needed because districts aren't suffering the kind of budget losses that we thought. Mm -hmm. So we have to ask, do districts know what to do with this money? If they don't have testing results, they don't know which kids need something. So we got to make sure they at least have that. But then do they have the wherewithal to know how to do a summer school program and get the teachers to do it, to do an after-school tutoring program, to do an extended school day? Some districts can figure this out, I'm sure. But there are going to be a lot of districts that are flush with money. And I would not be surprised if what we end up seeing is um, the kind of capital style purchases on things that are like one-time expenses, iPads, um, yeah. new textbooks. Or bonuses. Um, yes. Bonuses. I expect yeah. to see bonuses. Keeping people, you know, you now need six bus drivers, but you'll keep all eight and spread the routes because you don't want to fire anyone. Sure. I, I see that 
as a likelihood, which is supposed to be targeted at learning loss. And I just, it worries me that it won't be. I know because I just looked at the numbers yesterday. Uh, every year, 16, 17, 18, and 19, Missouri spent about 14500 per student, which seems wow. very high to me. But in last year, in 2020, they just reported that they spent 16, over 16000 16200 per student. So spending went way up. And then if you just add the, what they're getting in 2021, it could be eighteen or 19000 this year. I don't know. It seems exorbitantly high to me. But um, it does. I hope that we have the the knowledge to direct it to the right place. Um, I, it concerns me. I hope that this is an era when a whole bunch of parents take seriously like deliberative democracy and start to go to school board meetings and talk to their mm -hmm. teachers and principals because not only are they getting all this money from the federal government, if your district was closed, and I, people who don't know much about like district operations, they wouldn't think about this. Districts were able to save a ton of money on transportation alone. There are a lot of districts that spend a non-trivial part of their budgets just on bus drivers and gasoline, bus routes. When you don't have to do that, all of a sudden you have like this line item in your budget that went unspent and um, other things related to maintenance. So districts could have a pile of money that's just like backed up from not being spent and all of this new money. That's not gonna be the issue. It's does a superintendent know how to do a massive tutoring program? Or do so, you give a parent $2,500 so that they can go to Sylvan Learning Center? Right. Correct. So in many places, I, I don't know what your state laws are. Uh, districts probably wouldn't, even if they wanted to do that, I don't know if they could. Could they just they hand would, out? They wouldn't do it here. We, I, like I said, we're struggling to pass one, a first ESA bill to put some money into the hands of parents. But that's the argument behind it is, look, kids are going to be behind. You know, Florida has this uh, choice program where students who are not reading on grade level by third to fifth grade, you can get $500. You just get $500 available to pay tutors and sometimes lots of times they pay their own child's teacher to tutor them in the summer but uh i think this is to me this is a very good time to put money directly in the hands of parents because they know where their kids are and what they need for sure and one of the problems when you give a system a whole lot more money and they're not sure how to spend it is you can better I bet your bottom dollar that there are going to be a whole lot of new companies that are started that say, we know how to solve learning loss. Mm -hmm. They hang out a shingle and say, oh, come with us. We have a great program to help students get back up to speed on math or reading. And so um, a lot of these new firms are going to be able to suck up a bunch of this money and whether or not they know what they're doing is going to be the question. In many cases, they won't. But yep. districts have to get this money out the door. They have to spend the money or yep. it goes away. They will find a way to spend the money. That's right. Well, I hope that you will agree to come back and talk to me about that after we when, have a little bit better post. Whenever. What happened in 2021 um, and what's happening in 21, 22. I think those of us who've been in the ed reform space for a while, we have nice long careers in front of us. We can go on, on just the COVID pandemic for quite a while, figuring this, out what happened. Uh, for sure, learning loss and then system change and all of these uh, new policy programs to give families more choices. It'll be interesting. But I mean, without being too corny about it, what we got to be most concerned about is there were tens of millions of kids who had their education disrupted okay. this year. And how in the world do we try to make up for that? I, I, I hope we can. I hope we do something better than what I'm seeing so far. Oh, I agree. All right. Always nice to talk to you, Andy. I do appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Show Me Institute podcast. Find more at showmeinstitute.org.